Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. If you have ever been told that the Christian faith is a path to everything going right for you, I want you to think again. Because sometimes that's the pitch. You'll hear it being offered. Usually it may be by a tele-evangelist in the early hours of the morning. That if you've got enough faith, you can name it and claim it. Believe it and receive it. You can manifest whatever it is that constitutes your best life now. That, of course, is the title of the best-selling book by Joel Osteen, who, among other things, has excellent teeth. You can see that on the screen. In my own case, not to complain too much, I'm partway through root canal therapy. Plus, you may have heard, still battling with a nasty case of shingles, which my doctor says is something that older people get, which was not much comfort. But at least it's given me more time to reflect on today's passage as I lay awake at 2am last Tuesday morning wondering if I could sneak in another Panadol or two. Shingles, if you haven't had it, is no fun. It's painful. But look, you see, you might point the finger at me and say, well, Phil, what you need is more faith. And you'd be healed. You'd be back to living life at your full potential. If you know anything of the Old Testament book of Job, that's what his friends were saying to him, which wasn't much comfort in his case either. But sadly, it is still what some Christians like Joel Osteen and his local equivalents will say today. And if you are someone considering jumping into the Christian faith, as I know some of you are, it's fair to ask if that's a realistic expectation of the life of faith. Well, to get a glimpse of an answer to that, I want to take you back to the story of that first big Christian conversion. We saw it last Sunday. Saul, on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, who he calls followers of the way, to arrest them, bring them back bound to the high priest in Jerusalem. Again, you'll remember if you were here last week, he's confronted on the road to Damascus by a bright light and the voice of Jesus that turns his life around. But I want you to notice how clearly it's flagged that the life of discipleship he's about to embark on, the life of following and proclaiming Jesus which is the mission he's launched on, is far from a bed of roses. Let me remind you again of those words of Jesus to Ananias, who again we saw last week was given the job of restoring Saul's vision by laying on his hands. Jesus says to Ananias, go to him and restore to him because he's my chosen instrument for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. For I will show him, these are the key words, verse 19, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
in the words of that really old Lynn Anderson song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. For Saul, this is going to be a tough road to travel. See, interesting, isn't it? Very different to the Joel Austin best life now kind of pitch. The fact is, Saul's been conscripted, he's been chosen for a purpose. The job he's given is to proclaim Jesus to the Gentile world and to the children of Israel as well, if they'll listen. First great missionary. Yet because of his track record so far as a persecutor of Christians, we're going to see he finds very few friends on either side of the fence. If you're following in the reading from Acts 9, he stays on a while with the disciples at Damascus. He's spending his days in the Jewish synagogues proclaiming Jesus. And you need to remember this is so incredibly odd. This Jesus of Nazareth, the one whose name I've been passionately opposing, I've been wrong. I came to arrest anyone who followed him and instead he stopped me in my tracks and I'm following him myself because he really is son of God. And verses 21 and 22, they're hearing him and they're amazed and they're saying, surely this can't be the same guy. Isn't he the one who made havoc in Jerusalem, tried to wipe these people out? Didn't he come here to arrest them? And Saul, at the same time, is building up a strong following, confounding them by proving from the scriptures and from his own experience that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ they've been waiting for. But you see, here's the thing. Notice the words in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. There is a contract out on his life. And they're watching the city gates day and night to try to spot him leaving. You know, this is like the Melbourne gang wars. Gavin Preston, gunned down in a cafe in Keylor in broad daylight, a million dollar bounty on his head. That's how it is for Saul. There was another one in Sydney, Alan Meradian, another gangland kingpin. Police say they had warned him there was a contract to kill him and he was living in constant fear until he was gunned down in his car in the car park of his apartment. Constant fear, always looking over your shoulder. That's how it is for Saul. But verse 25, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He flees the city in darkness. Fugitive for the sake of Christ. But astonishingly, he heads straight back to Jerusalem into the hornet's nest. Look, living in fear of opponents who want to kill you, that'd be bad enough. 
But to rub salt into the wounds, when he gets to Jerusalem, not even the Christians want to know him. Which I guess is understandable. There is a deep suspicion, there's a distrust that this most famous of persecutors has somehow switched sides. Verse 26 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. And who can blame them? This is the guy who applauded the stoning of Stephen a few chapters ago. The guy who took letters of commendation from the high priest to persecute the Christians in Damascus. And now he's saying he's changed sides. No wonder there's no welcome there. Again, look at it from Saul's perspective. He's totally on his own. I watched a little video on social isolation the other day, problem that was supercharged through the pandemic. Being socially isolated, it said, correlates directly with a low score on the life satisfaction index. Being part of a caring community has a bigger positive impact on well-being and career success or money or sitting on your own all day watching Netflix, gaming on your PlayStation. We're built to be together. Being part of a community of believers is a huge privilege. And yet the disciples in Jerusalem slam the door in Saul's face because they don't believe he's one of them. Until Barnabas, the guy we met earlier in Acts, the guy they call the son of encouragement, takes the risk, takes him under his wing, and brings him to the apostles with the story of how he's been confronted by Jesus on the road and how he's been preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And so now, verse 28, he goes in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly. In the name of the Lord. Because you see, no matter what the dangers, no matter what the opposition, that's what Saul's been commissioned to do. And so no surprises. Same result was at Damascus. As he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. They too are now seeking to kill him. So effective in debate, it seems, so reversed from what he used to be, that they won't tolerate it. So once again, Saul's on the run, a fugitive for the faith in fear for his life. The brothers smuggle him down to the seaport at Caesarea. They send him off to Tarsus. Saul is running for his life back to his hometown and he stays there two or three years. Things in Judea and Galilee and Samaria calm down. Verse 31 brings the section to a close. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now again, though, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Saul. Church in Jerusalem has a moment of peace. 
but not Saul. Hated and hounded by the Jews everywhere, changing sides, always looking over his shoulder. That's just the start. It gets worse. And so later on in his letter to the Corinthians in our second reading, he describes his career in detail. I don't know if you noticed in the second reading, but let me unpack it a bit. Because a few years later in Corinth, after he'd established the church, it's been established for a while, Joel Osteen comes to town, or someone very similar, and starts preaching your best life now. There's a group of them. Saul, now going by the name of Paul, calls them with irony the super apostles, offering success, offering health, offering wealth. Sign up with us and everything will go well for you. Which is ultimately just a pyramid scheme. Paul's answer is, look at me for a minute and you'll see what a real apostle looks like. He says, I'm crazy to talk like this, but compare my track record to theirs and ask yourself, which one looks more like Jesus who came to suffer and to serve and to hang on a cross? Verse 23 from 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Okay, he says, I know I'm talking like a madman, but I have far greater labours, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Do you get that? What he's most proud of is the number of times he's been in jail, the countless beatings. What he's proud of is that he's been under the constant threat of death. Damascus and Jerusalem, they were just the start. He says five times, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel it with them? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? See, here is a guy who's been through the mill. Life is tough, and it gets tougher. Not just opposition, but danger. Not just danger, but hunger. Not just that, but anxiety. Now, friend, if you have ever suffered from anxiety, here is the first Christian convert saying he knows your sleepless nights firsthand. And you know what? That's okay. It's not that you're somehow lacking in faith. Verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. And then verse 
31 and 32, he describes exactly the event we've just read about right back at the very start in Damascus. Let down in a basket through a window. Life on the run. See, those super apostles were promising success. They were promising heaven on earth right now. And yet Saul says real Christian life means pressing on in adversity. Means serving Jesus no matter what. Means glorifying in our own weakness and finding our strength somehow in him. And so in chapter 12 he concludes, Let the super apostles with their shiny teeth say what they like. I'm not going to boast except in my weakness. Because the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I'll put up with it, he says. Weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity, being a fugitive for the faith. Because in my weakness, when all I can do is hang on in faith, that's when it's only the power of Christ that keeps me going. And then I am strong. Now, friends, I know there are so many here in our church family, or maybe you're here for the first time today, who need to hear these words and take heart. Every now and then I hear of someone who's faced a life tragedy or a challenge, and as a consequence, they just give up on their faith. I guess in a way that's understandable. And yet in another way, you know, they say disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. Pessimists are rarely disappointed because they always expect the worst. Now, I'm not suggesting that as Christians we live a life of pessimism, and I don't think that's Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians more perhaps a balanced realism that is balanced with a real hope. That we're not at any point promised a rose garden now. And especially if you're serious about living your faith out in a way that makes you different. If you're serious about publicly owning the name of Jesus where you work or where you live. That's not a ticket to easy street. But you see, there is real hope that Saul has glimpsed already in the risen Jesus. That there's the promise of a coming day when death itself turns into resurrection and there will be no more tears or crying or pain. That is not yet. If anyone tells you they can bring in the heavenly city right now, It's always going to be an empty promise that leads to disappointment. The American theologian Rebecca McLaughlin says this, The further I go on in life, the more convinced I am that every Christian is a struggling Christian, dependent on help from brothers and sisters who know their needs and vulnerabilities. We're simply not designed for solo flight. 
Can I encourage you? Press on. Don't be surprised if things are tough. Don't think it's a sign that you're somehow lacking in faith. These are the times for growing faith. It was a tough road for Jesus. It was a tough road for Saul. And sometimes it's going to be a tough road for you and me. And just remember the reason we gather as a church family isn't to show one another how well we're doing, but to share in that struggle together. Who knows? Maybe the toughest day of all for Saul was that day he was shut out of the church until Barnabas brought him in. So opposition or not, anxiety or not, tough roads or not, let's press on together and remember these words. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. 